Welcome to the Great Decisions Podcast. Have you noticed how people these days speak in absolutes? Everything is either all right or all wrong. Do you frequently hear that one president was an abject failure while his successor is a stunning success, even though both had their ups and downs? Do you tire of the hyperbole of political discourse? Do you need to channel surf among newscasts or visit multiple web pages to hear differing opinions? Are you interested in U.S. foreign policy and world affairs? If you answered yes to any of these questions, this podcast is for you. And if you're stuck in a rut, listening to only one point of view, you owe it to yourself to at least consider other perspectives. Here you will find unbiased assessments of world affairs based upon geostrategic, not political loyalties. This podcast is brought to you by the Foreign Policy Association. My name is Jeffrey Morton. I'm a professor of political science at Florida Atlantic University and a fellow at the Foreign Policy Association. I will host this podcast, which offers a weekly analysis of major foreign policy topics. For more than a century, the Foreign Policy Association has promoted a broad, objective political discourse on world affairs and U.S. foreign policy. Headquartered in New York City, the association is renowned for its Great Decisions programming, The Great Decisions Handbook, television series, and masterclass are used by thousands of groups across the country annually. This podcast is the latest addition to our offerings. Since this is our inaugural broadcast, a word about our mission is in order. It is not the goal of the FPA to tell you what to think or who to support. We are not beholden to a political party or movement or foreign policy orientation. Our mission is to provide you with foreign policy options and to encourage public discussion. Great decisions are informed decisions. Many of our podcasts will look at specific foreign policy challenges, ongoing conflicts among nations, China and Taiwan, Russia, Iran, NATO, Latin America among many others. Others will focus on big picture issues such as the rise and fall of great powers. I should note that the opinions and views expressed in this podcast are my own and not necessarily those of the FPA or program sponsors. All errors and omissions are my own. Before we can delve into foreign policy challenges, it is important to set the stage by thinking more broadly. Without perspective, our foreign policy preferences are mere trial and error, hit and miss. By perspective, I mean worldview. What does the world look like to you? What is important and unimportant? How is the world put together? How does it come apart? And what do we do when it does? What foreign policy tools are most effective? Economic sanctions? Military intervention? Diplomacy? What do we expect from the world? Peace and security or war and destruction? Is the global stage an arena for competition or cooperation and what drives it? Today in the United States, there seems to be a consensus formed around the expectation that China will invade Taiwan. Politicians, Republican and Democrat, academics, policymakers, and talking heads 
all reach the same conclusion. War is looming and the U.S. needs to be ready for direct military engagement with China. Setting aside whether this is an accurate assessment, the implications of believing it are profound. If we assume that war with China is inevitable, our military posture, strategy, and force projection need to be redirected. Our trade disengagement with China, a process that we are only just beginning, must be put on warp speed. Munitions and shells, currently serving as a lifeline for Ukraine in its war with Russia, must be stockpiled in anticipation of need in East Asia. If the Ukraine war ended today, it would still take the United States 15 years to replenish the shells that we have sent to our besieged ally. And every day, Ukraine burned through eight days of munitions production. If war with China is imminent, we better rethink our Ukraine war strategy. With this magnitude of impact, we better have a high degree of confidence that we've got the China question right. Frankly, the so-called China question isn't at all about Taiwan. There's a deeper China question that, when answered incorrectly, leads to conflict in Taiwan. At some point, we will feature Taiwan security in a podcast, but we're not there yet. So how are we to know right from wrong? How can we predict what others will do? The answer is worldview. The worldview that we adopt informs us of the international system. It explains history, the present, and has predictive powers. It paints a picture of the world and our place within it. Our worldview identifies top-shelf foreign policy challenges and opportunities and directs our foreign policy energies towards them. A worldview also greatly simplifies global politics, telling us what to consider, look for, and how to respond. There are four foreign policy approaches that the United States has adopted since the Cold War ended, each reflecting a distinct worldview. This is the main reason that our foreign policy over these past three decades has been so inconsistent. One administration calls for great power cooperation, the next openly talks about militarily protecting Taiwan from China. One president questions the relevance of NATO, while the next calls the defense organization an essential component of American strategic thinking. Some presidents view climate change as an existential threat, others see it as a distraction. In this first set of Great Decisions podcast, I will outline the four worldviews, how they see the world, what underlying assumptions they're based upon, what the future holds, what sort of foreign policy we should pursue. Once I'm done, your job is to decide which worldview strikes you as most accurate and logical. From that point forward, your understanding of world affairs will be greatly enhanced. The four worldviews are liberal internationalism, realpolitik, neoconservatism, and America First. In this podcast, I will explain liberal internationalism. Tune in for the three remaining worldviews and you'll be ready for a subsequent podcast that address specific foreign policy challenges. Liberal internationalism is sometimes referred to as Wilsonian internationalism, 
as it is most closely associated with U.S. President Woodrow Wilson. While Wilson was the first American president to overtly adopt liberalism for foreign policy, its origins date to the Scottish and French Enlightenments. Like the other worldviews, liberal internationalism is based upon assumptions that can neither be proven or disproven. Simply put, they're taken as an article of faith. First, people individually and collectively as nation-states learn from their mistakes and improve upon reflection on their errors. This may seem trivial and obvious, but not all worldviews share it, as some believe that we are hardwired to fall into conflict and destruction. It is an enormously impacting assumption because it allows liberals to expect and plan for a positive trajectory in world politics. We are not condemned to repeat history accordingly, and we are not hardwired to self-destruction. The Wilsonian internationalist liberals are optimist. Assumption number two, the state of affairs is peaceful. That's what is natural in world politics. Or to put it another way, when the system breaks down, war, gross violations of human rights, economic calamity, decision makers have made mistakes. With enough effort and the proper coordination of foreign policies among nations, the world can be conflict-free, peaceful, and prosperous. Before the worldview was named after Woodrow Wilson, it was referred to as idealism because it saw an ideal world on the horizon. Assumption number three is that human nature is good. People, when properly educated and informed, will work together with others as opposed to seeking to dominate them. Based upon these assumptions, Wilsonian internationalists are highly positive in their assessment of world affairs. Assumptions may be the building block of a worldview, which allows us to make foreign policy decisions based upon them. Like the others, liberal internationalism prescribes specific approaches to interacting with other nations. They are as follows. Number one, International laws, arrived at openly, will clarify international relations, reduce uncertainty and misperception, and promote positive interactions among nations. Policy prescription number two, international organizations serve as arenas where diplomats and world leaders can negotiate the resolution of disputes. Number three, free trade redirects world affairs, away from conflict, and towards healthy and prosperous competitive trade. The more voluminous the trade between two nation-states, the more expensive it would be to go to war with each other. Think for a moment about the countries the United States has gone to war with since the Cold War ended. Panama, Iraq, the former Yugoslavia, Afghanistan, Iraq again, Libya, and nearly Syria. These countries have much in common, major violators of international law that refuse to allow the United Nations and international community to resolve their internal and external problems. But they also have in common is that they do not have a high trade relationship with the United States. Going to war with these countries, while expensive in materiel, did not disrupt U.S. trade policy. 
it would be much more expensive to wage war with them had the United States faced the prospect of losing a vital trade relationship. Therefore, trade is a key element to peace for liberals. Policy number four is referred to as the democratic peace. This is the centerpiece of liberal internationalism, in large part because of its strong historical record. Academics sometimes refer to the democratic peace as the only iron law of the social sciences. It's not that democracies do not go to war. Statistically, they wage war as often as non-democracies. But democracies do not go to war with other democracies. This idea dates back to 1795 when Immanuel Kant wrote Perpetual Peace, where he premised an inverse relationship between democracy and war. If accurate, this is the magic bullet. Spread democracy, reduce welfare among nations. What a reorientation of U.S. foreign policy this would entail. Rather than supplying allies with military aid, as we're wont to do, invest that money instead in the development of democratic institutions. Building democracy abroad, however, is no simple task and may not even be possible in many countries as the George W. Bush administration learned in Afghanistan and Iraq and as President Obama realized in Libya. So there we have it. A liberal international foreign policy promotes free trade, international diplomacy, and the spread of democracy. Have we ever really tried this? Two presidents come to mind. The first is the most obvious, Woodrow Wilson, after whom the foreign policy approach has been named. When World War I began in 1914, Wilson kept the U.S. at a distance, viewing the war as being caused by realpolitik policies in Europe. In our next podcast, we'll look at political realism or realpolitik, for now considered as the polar opposite of liberalism. When the Americans entered World War I in 1917, it was the deciding factor. Fresh forces and weapons injected on the Anglo-French side ensured that the Germans would not break through and win the war. It ended in November of 1918 with a general armistice or ceasefire. Settling the terms of the end of the war and creating a new world order were left to the victorious allies, Great Britain, France, Italy, to less extent Japan, and of course the United States. When Woodrow Wilson arrived in France in early 1918, he was welcomed as a hero. The European populations, exhausted by four years of total war, celebrated his new vision, liberalism, that promised a world without conflict. Leading the negotiations, Wilson implored his European allies to reintegrate Germany by openly trading with it, to solve disputes diplomatically, and to help him create an international organization, the League of Nations, that would promote his liberal worldview. He ran into nothing but opposition, abroad and at home. France did not want to reduce its military, as liberalism requires, and trust Germany not to seek revenge. Other allies balked at his recommendations, and no one was really excited about the proposed League of Nations. 
At home, the election calendar undermined national unity. 1920 was a presidential election year, and the opposition party, the Republicans, rejected Wilson's desire to commit the country to universal principles of disarmament, open trade, and subservience to international law. Not only was Wilson not able to gain Senate ratification for the League of Nations Covenant, but three successive isolationist presidents, Harding, Coolidge, and Hoover, were elected in the 1920s. Our other president who pursued a liberal international foreign policy was Jimmy Carter. On the heels of the long, painful, and divisive Vietnam War and the shocking revelations relating to the Watergate scandal, Americans were ready for a change. Jimmy Carter offered it. He blamed the Cold War on realpolitik military thinking and prescribed a liberal foreign policy. He pressured the Shah of Iran to lighten up on human rights violations. He criticized President Somoza, our ally in power in Nicaragua, to change. Carter trusted the Russians on arms control and expected Moscow to behave responsibly. While Jimmy Carter experienced a major international success, the Camp David Accords, his foreign policy record otherwise was dismal. On his watch, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. Religious, anti-American radicals deposed the Shah and came to power in Iran. Communist Sandinistas toppled the government in Nicaragua. Vietnam invaded Cambodia, and it was revealed that the Russians had been cheating on arms control agreements. For many, the failures of Wilson and Carter indicate that a liberal international foreign policy is a folly an unworkable, even counterproductive approach to world affairs. And that may well be the case. There is, however, a very important lesson to be drawn from these two presidents, separated by half a century but joined by a common philosophy. You cannot pursue a liberal internationalist foreign policy in a vacuum. Other nation-states have to join you. The League of Nations could not succeed if countries went there to pursue their own narrow, selfish interest. And Jimmy Carter could not compel our enemies to change their stripes just because we were promising to change ours. This is what I call the liberal conundrum. The major powers have to commit at the same time to this very different way of behaving. That's like threading a needle in a windstorm. The odds are quite long. Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes the inaugural Great Decisions podcast. To help us continue to bring quality presentations to you, we ask that you register or follow us. It depends on the platform that you're using to listen to this podcast. There is no cost or obligation in doing so. However, it allows us to notify you when the next podcast is uploaded. Depending on the platform, this involves a click on follow or subscribe. Tune in next time to learn about the other worldviews and the foreign policies that they prescribe. After we've reviewed all four, the task is yours to decide which is best. For now, stay engaged and make great decisions.